about this idea starting last week of profit reboot. Uh, yeah, it's working good, uh, of profit reboot. And uh, this is the idea that uh, the prophets, and in particular the section of, of prophets that we call the minor prophets, have something to say to us today in the modern world and in the 21st uh, century. And so you see the picture on the screen, you know, you've got your phone there, and you've got a list of those prophets there, half the names you can't even pronounce, uh, but are we going to listen to what they have to say to us, or are we going to ignore what they have to say to us? And they say some pretty incredible things, uh, things that reach even to the modern era today, uh, just to... to um, go over what we talked about last week. You have in the, in the Old Testament, in the Bible that Jesus read for all intents and purposes, you got three sections there that he referred to. Uh, and in English, um, in an English translation, you see Jesus calls them the law and the prophets and the writings. Or sometimes he says the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. In Hebrew, the law is what we would call the Torah. Any of you who work with Jewish people, you know that. And the prophets are the Nevi'im, and the writings or the Psalms are the Ketuvim. You put those three words together, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, and you get Tanakh. And this is the Hebrew Old Testament. This is the Bible that Jesus read from. Now, in this little section called the Nevi'im, or the prophets, you have a list of 12 of them who we today, we call the minor. And we call them minor because their work is small. Their books are small, and that makes them, for us, a bonus because they're easier to read, usually because they're a smaller work. doesn't mean that they're less important. doesn't mean they're less significant. It means the, the, the material is smaller, whereas, you know, a prophet like Isaiah, he's got 66 chapters. Uh, a prophet like Habakkuk, who we'll look at today, has got only three. Ah, last week, we did the whole book of Jonah. In one, uh, in one message, we did the whole thing. We read the actual whole book of Jonah, I think, last week. Reads really easy in, in one message. So today, we're going to cover uh, another short uh, prophet. Um, the, the list of the 12 is there on the screen. So you've got Hosea. You've got Joel. We've got a Joel. Uh, one of the kids is named Joel in the, in the other room today. We've got Amos, Obadiah. Anybody name your kid Obadiah? No? Okay. Maybe when you have kids, you might try Obadiah. Uh, Jonah, right? We've got Micah. There is a family. I don't see them here yet, but they've got a Micah, baby Micah, in their home. We've got Nahum. Uh, we've got Habakkuk, okay? We always say Habakkuk in, in church. This would, make, this would make Hebrew people upset. We say Habakkuk. Try it with me. Habakkuk. Okay, just call him the kook for today, all right? So that's who we'll cover today. You've got Zephaniah. I don't see anybody naming their kid Zephaniah these days. You've got Haggai. You've got Zechariah. And you've got Malachi. These are the so-called minor prophets, right? So last week, again, we talked about what the role of these people were and really the role of prophecy in the Bible. And this is, this is key for you today. Prophets in the Bible are not crystal ball readers in Jesus' name. They're, they're not that. So today, we sometimes designate prophets um, as these people who will tell us our future in Jesus' name. 
And when, when we hear that there's a prophet in town, uh, you know, somewhere nearby, of course, we run and we say we want to hear what the prophet says because the prophet will tell me all of these things about my life and about my future, but they'll just do it in Jesus' name. This is not really the way that prophets work in the, in the Bible at all. Uh, prophecy was not the preferred job of people. They did not aspire to be prophets. In fact, most of the prophets that we see were reluctant uh, to do what God wanted them to do. They felt inadequate. They felt unworthy to do the jobs that they were asked to do. Um, and they often were persecuted for the things that they said uh, because they, they usually did one of two things, uh, and that is forthtelling and foretelling. So the idea of forthtelling is that the prophet would speak on behalf of God. They would say, this is the way that God feels. This is the way that God thinks. This is the way that God is reacting to the way that you are living. And these prophets would usually have messages that were strong against transgression and against sin. And they would warn the people. Do, don't you remember what the Tanakh says? You know, don't you remember what the law says? If you live in such and such a way, then bad things are going to come. You better straighten up because God sees the way that you are living, Israel. And, you know, the messages were often strong. And it was, this is what God thinks on the matter. This is what God says on the matter. That's forthtelling. The majority of the body of the prophetic work in Scripture is foretelling. Uh, uh, but then there's foretelling. And foretelling is because of such and such and such, this is what God is going to do in the future. This is what he's going to do. And usually it was something that was harsh. It was something that was coming that is, oh, no, we're going to be punished somehow because of our transgression. God is going to do this because we have done such and such. So it was foretelling and foretelling. So this business of let's go visit the prophet and he will tell me that uh, I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And one day I'll meet a nice man and one day I'll meet a nice woman and everything will go well for you in Jesus' name. This is not exactly the way that they worked in the Bible, okay? So just be careful of that distinction. Uh, and we're going to look today at uh, Habakkuk or Habakkuk, you pronounce his name, uh, and look at some lessons from this prophet who complained. He was a prophet who had some major uh, problems with God, uh, two in, in particular major, major issues that he had with God, and he complains very, very clearly uh, to God in the Old Testament. You can find um, this prophet, if you, if you can find Matthew in your, in your New Testament, those of you who have paper Bibles, and you start moving to the left a little bit, you're going to find uh, Habakkuk uh, fairly quickly. Or if you've got a phone, just punch him up on your phone. He's only three chapters long. Uh, his name, which is very hard to pronounce, meant embrace. Uh, Habakkuk embrace. Um, the book is a dialogue between him and God. It's a conversation uh, that he's having with God, and he's got two very bold questions and complaints uh, that he brings to God uh, first and foremost. Uh, but before we get there, you've got to understand uh, why he's complaining and what his, his major beef is. Um, 
the culture and the context is crucial because when you understand that, you say, ah, now I understand. Uh, we looked at this a little bit when we talked about uh, the Pharisees a few weeks ago, but I'm going to just review a few slides for you. Uh, this man is writing probably around the year 605 BC, so quite a while before Jesus was born. But in that period of history, this is what's going on. Uh, first and foremost, you have well before he's even born, he's, he's, he's in a situation where his nation is already divided. So in the year 922 BC, the nation of Israel is divided because of Solomon and Solomon's uh, uh, son and uh, Solomon's son's decision to levy the people with this heavy yoke of taxes, etc. And there's this rebellion that takes place and there's a split, uh, effectively a civil war of sorts in the nation of Israel and you've got your 10 tribes to the north, which you called Israel, and you've got your two tribes to the south, which you called Judah or Jerusalem, all right? And uh, this is a big deal back in the time of the Old Testament, and the prophets often reference this thing, uh, but you have to understand that you're dealing with a nation there that already has division in it. A couple of hundred years later, uh, as we talked about last week, you have the Assyrian Empire, um, and they would come and they would conquer those 10 tribes to the north, what was called Israel, and that those 10 tribes would never, ever be uh, restored. Uh, we call those the lost tribes, actually, today. And uh, this vicious uh, Assyrian army would take Israel in 722 B.C. And this is well after uh, Jonah had preached in the city of Nineveh, the capital city. Um, just as a pause, it's pretty amazing that the people repented under Jonah's preaching, and it didn't take them long. Uh, to change back to their usual ways. There's a few kings later, and you see they go right into Israel, and they take out Israel violently, uh, even after uh, they had repented briefly under that, under that stint of, uh, of the prophet Jonah. So the conquering of Israel is in the year 722. That's key for you because we're starting to move into the time of Habakkuk, okay? Next big thing that happens is that the Babylonians will take the south. So Assyria took the north. The Babylonians will come starting in the year 605, just at the period of time where Habakkuk is writing his, uh, his work. So from 605 to 586, you've got this invasion uh, that is going to happen. Again, another violent invasion where the Babylonians will take Jerusalem to the south. They will sack and burn the temple. They will take the people off to Babylon. Uh, you know some of those people, uh, Daniel and, and his, um, his little entourage, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys. Those are all the people who were deported off to, uh, to Babylon. And um, this is when he is writing his, his, uh, his work. It's just before then. Uh, but if you inspect that period of time, in the history of his part of Israel, you see that there's a lot of turmoil that's happening in, in his particular time, in his, uh, his era. Um, you go on a little bit, uh, and I'll, I'll give you the detail in a second, but you go on a little bit and you will see uh, that the Medo-Persians will take the Babylonians in 539. Uh, 
This also happens when the prophets are writing. You see it in the book of Daniel. Uh, and they will conquer Babylon and take Babylon. And then you will see that the, the, the Persian Empire in the year 538 will start to return the exiles from Babylon to Jerusalem. All this stuff is cooking while these prophets are writing. And Habakkuk, he's writing just before the Babylonian invasion. And if you inspect that time and you look at what uh, is going on, um, you see a time of very severe sin in his part of Israel. So in the south there, in Judah, uh, most probably what's going on is that there's a king uh, who's reigning there, and his name is Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim is a son of a very godly king who was named Josiah. Some people name their children Josiah today. Josiah was a very, very righteous king, brought about great reforms. Uh, but his son, Jehoiakim, was uh, not a godly uh, leader at all. And it's most likely when Jehoiakim was in charge that Habakkuk is writing. Uh, Jehoiakim was uh, forced onto the throne by the Egyptian pharaoh whose name was Necho. And Nico actually killed the righteous king Josiah in mortal combat, and he took over control of Judah. So he puts uh, Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, on the throne by force. This guy is an ungodly king. He squanders money to build a palace for himself. Uh, Jeremiah, the contemporary prophet of Habakkuk, would predict that this king would die and be buried like a donkey. Uh, Jehoiakim would get very angry at the prophet Jeremiah. He would burn his book uh, at another time. So this is when uh, this book is being written. Uh, it's a time of turmoil in his land. Uh, it's a very stressful time. There's corruption in the leadership. Uh, it's all out of control, and he's very, very upset. He's very burdened as he writes this work. Um, he sees a kingdom that is led by really the Egyptians. He sees a corrupt king, and here he goes, and he puts pen to paper. And it's very important for you to know the background, and here is his first complaint. I don't know if you ever complained to God. Any of you ever complained to God? Like, is there any honest people in the room today? Like, I complain to God a lot, okay? I'm not afraid to talk to God because I know that God can take it. And sometimes I may say some really dumb things to God. Uh, but God can take our, our complaints. Um, and here is the first big complaint that Habakkuk has uh, toward, toward God. Uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. How long, O Lord? Must I call for help? You ever say that? But you do not listen. I'm praying. I'm supposed to pray, but my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I call out to you, God. You don't answer. You don't listen. I cry out to you. Violence. Look at this world that we live in, but you do not listen. I'm a prophet. Look what's going on in my land. You make me look at injustice. Why do you tolerate what is wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife. There is conflict. Your law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. You ever say these things? You ever think these things about God? 
uh, the wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. What's he, what's he saying? God, why do you allow this corrupt king, Jehoiakim, who, who builds a palace with, with, uh, with money that people give, you, you, you allow Josiah to be killed by the Egyptian. You allow the Egyptians to use this other guy as the king. You tolerate this injustice. You tolerate this wrong. You don't listen. You don't do anything. Where's your power? Where's justice? Seems like it's all, all gone. This is his complaint. Wow, very strong. This is a prophet. This is a man who's supposed to speak on behalf of God. And he's got some complaints that, wow, they're very relevant for today. I don't know if you look around at the world around you and you try and reconcile the justice of God, the holiness of God, the omnipotence of God. And you look around at this world and you scratch your head and you say, well, what's he doing? Is he twiddling his thumbs up there? Is he, is he writing emails? <laughs> like, what's going on? Well, this is the exact same thing that Habakkuk says to God, just in a different time, perhaps in a slightly different wrapping paper. But this is what he's saying to God. And God is going to give him an answer. Isn't it nice that God actually answered him? This is why I say, you know, some people are afraid to complain to God. Some people are afraid to get angry with God. Some people are afraid to, to, to even talk to God. Can I tell you something? God would rather hear your complaining than hear nothing from you at all. He'd rather have you talk to him and be angry with him than to never talk to him at all. I mean, do you think that God is intimidated by you? He's not. He's not intimidated by you. He's not intimidated by me. He's not intimidated by the lot of us. We can yell at him and scream at him and complain at him all we want. And God, believe it or not, is going to listen. And if God is going to answer a prophet in this time, I dare say that he may well answer us. He answers this prophet he doesn't ignore him. He doesn't reject him. He doesn't smite him. He doesn't punish him. He actually gives him an answer, and his answer is going to make Habakkuk even more angry. Watch this. So here's the answer from verses 5 to 11. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days... In other words, it's going to happen pretty quickly, Habakkuk, uh, that you would not believe even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians. <laughs> okay, these are unholy people, the Babylonians. These are ungodly, vicious, vicious empire. I am raising up, Habakkuk, get this. The Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a lot of themselves and promote their own honor. You know those people, Habakkuk? Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry, uh, cavalry, uh, sorry, cavalry gallops along. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. You know those people, Habakkuk? Those are the people that I am going to use those people. I'm going to use those people. 
They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like desert wind and, and gather prisoners like, like sand they do. They deride kings. They scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. They, they, then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose strength is their God. Those are the people, Mr. Prophet, that I am going to use. That is my answer. <laughs> and that's going to get Habakkuk a little bit uh, upset. It's a very shocking answer. I don't know if God, when he answers your prayers, he answers in ways that shock you and get you a little more frustrated, a little more angry. Well, you're in good company. Uh, this is exactly what happens to the prophet. And he's saying, you, you would not believe it unless someone told you, or even if someone told you. I mean, I'm going to do this thing, and I'm going to do it in your time, and this is my way, Mr. Prophet, of dealing with the injustice and the evil that you see in your land. Quite a strange answer. Um, this, this passage would be quoted by the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, he, he's, he's preaching about Jesus to the people in a place called Pisidian Antioch, and he's, he quotes the passage, and he says there, take care that what the prophets have said does not also happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I am going to do something, quoting from Habakkuk, uh, in your days that you would never believe, even if someone told you. And Paul, he's using this argument, and he's saying, uh, uh, you see God's judgment against the injustice that Habakkuk cried out uh, against in Judah. And he says, don't ignore that message because um, I'm going to do the same kind of thing in your day. Watch and, and look around. I'm going to deal with injustice and I'm going to deal uh, with evil. And this is Paul talking to people in the book of Acts. Uh, ultimately, what he's imagining, what he's referring to, is the coming of the Lord Jesus himself and his second coming. And he's saying you need to learn from the past the same way that God acted in the past. Well, don't you think God's going to act in the future? Don't you think he's going to deal with sin? And don't you think he's going to deal with injustice? And don't you think he's going to deal with evil? So it, the prophet complains about the character of God challenging the character of God. God, if you're good, God, if you're holy, God, if you're just, why do you not answer? Why do you allow all this corruption? And God is going to expose this prophet and his limited understanding. See, I can use whoever I want to use Habakkuk to deal with this problem, um, and I choose to use the Babylonians. Do you know that God uses ungodly people sometimes? I know we don't like that, but sometimes God uses the ungodly for his purpose. Uh, just look around the world around you. Do you think that all these leaders that come and go in the various nations of the world, do you think that they're there by accident? Ultimately, it's God who arranges these things. He arranges the pieces of these puzzles, 
And ultimately, God uses one for his bidding, and he brings one up, he brings another down. This is the way that God works, and sometimes we don't like it. We don't like the way that he does it, and neither did Habakkuk, because now you've got another complaint on your hands. Uh, he, re- he kind of retaliates to God after God gives him this answer, and here is Habakkuk's next complaint. He's going to question now the way in which God chooses to deal with injustice and evil in his land. Uh, This is uh, verse 12 of chapter 1 to verse 1 of chapter 2. O Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, uh, we will not die. O Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. He's referring to the Babylonians. O Rock, you have ordained them to punish um, your eyes are too pure to look on evil you cannot tolerate wrong why then do you tolerate the treacherous so here you go again you're going to use ungodly people to bring justice to my land why are you silent while the wicked that is the babylonians swallow up those more righteous than themselves um, you have made men like fish in the sea like sea creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks. He catches them in his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, and he rejoices, and he's glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. (laughs) He's referring to the idolatry of the Babylonians, and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net, he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest food. Is Is he to keep on emptying his net? destroying nations without mercy. Uh, I will stand and watch, he says, chapter 2, verse 1, and I will station myself on the ramparts. So this is Habakkuk folding his arms. He's saying, I'm going to see what answer God is going to give me to this because now I've got God in a corner. I've got him on the ropes, and I'm challenging the way that he's going to work in the life of of my nation. And I'm going to see what answer comes from God. God, how can you use this method? How can you do what you do this way? Now, if you stop and think about it, what would he rather have preferred, this prophet? What did he want? A lightning bolt to come out of the sky and strike Judah? What do you want? A calamity to come and strike Judah? But because God chooses to use the Babylonians, it gets this prophet very, very upset. I mean, he's as mad as a hatter. You know, he's, he's steaming mad. And God is not going to ignore him. God is not going to smite him. God is going to give him an answer. He's going to give him another answer, which, which is, again, a strange answer. He's going to expose uh, the fact that this prophet has a very limited vision, very, very limited. Here's his answer. Then the Lord replied, write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald, that's like a sort of a divine mailman, may run with it. Um, For the revelation waits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and it will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come, and it will not delay. See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, 
but the righteous will live by faith. <laughs> this is God's answer to the second complaint. So he's saying, Habakkuk, you have a very short-sighted vision. Let me reveal to you something that will await an appointed time, something that will speak of the end. You need to wait for it. You need to, to, to understand that it will come. Babylon is puffed up and not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. Say, what does that mean? What in the world is he talking about uh, when he says this? This is kind of a convoluted answer. But you keep reading the chapter and you will see he's basically saying, listen, Babylon is going to come and it's going to go, Habakkuk. Don't you understand? Don't you have any vision? Because you have plundered many nations, verse 8, Speaking to the Babylonians, the people who are left will plunder you, Babylonians. For you have shed man's blood, you have destroyed lands and cities, and everyone in them, verse 13, has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labor is only fuel for the fire, that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing. So the Babylonians are going to come, Habakkuk, and they're going to go. I'm using them for a particular purpose, but their time is going to end as well. Don't you see it? But the righteous will live by faith, Habakkuk. Do you understand what I'm saying? And Habakkuk doesn't understand what he's saying, but later on, the Babylonians would fall. The Medo-Persians would take the Babylonians in 539. You can read about this in the book of Daniel. Uh, many years later, the Persians would fall to the Greeks. Many years later, the Romans would conquer. The Romans would eventually implode upon themselves. In fact, Habakkuk, I have a much bigger picture ahead in the future. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord, verse 14, with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, the righteous will live by his faith, Habakkuk. Do you understand what I'm talking about? No, he doesn't. This passage, the righteous will live by his faith, is something that's quoted. The alarm is finished. Yes, the beeping. I know you were all listening to the beeping. This passage is quoted in the New Testament multiple times. It is a passage that is a shadow of the message of Jesus and the gospel of grace. So Romans chapter 1, verse 17, for in the gospel, Paul says, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Guess who wrote that? The complaining prophet. Galatians 3, verse 11, again by Paul, clearly no one is justified before God by the law because... The righteous will live by his faith. It's the gospel message. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 37, 38. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Speaking of the second coming there. But my righteous one will live by faith. It's the gospel message. So what is he saying to this prophet? He's saying, you have a very limited vision of what is to come I'm telling you that I'm using these people for a time. I'm telling you that nations come and nations go. In the end, their labor is just fuel for the fire, fire Habakkuk, but the righteous will live by faith. Do you understand? 
And of course, he doesn't. He has a partial, very, very partial understanding. But he, he challenges God two times. And God gives him two answers, both of which, in, in his mind, probably aren't satisfactory, probably aren't enough, we think. And yet we see that Habakkuk changes his tune. Quite literally, uh, he changes his tune uh, because the, the, the third chapter of the book is a song that Habakkuk writes. And somehow, some way, um, he comes to a place of conclusion with the answers that God gives him. And he basically says, you know what? I'm going to trust God. Maybe I don't understand everything that he's saying to me, but I'm going to trust God even though I don't fully comprehend. The end of chapter 2, but the Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And somehow, somewhere there in between the lines, Habakkuk changes his tune and he spends all of chapter 3 uh, singing and composing a piece of music um, to God. And his understanding, maybe it's partial, of the sovereignty of God and the fact that he has to trust him. So Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, renew them in our day, in our time, make them known in wrath, because he, he sees the wrath of the Babylonians to come, remember mercy. And you keep reading, verse 13, um, you came out to deliver your people, you saved your anointed one, you crushed the leader of the land of wickedness, you stripped him from head to foot, speaking probably of what will happen to the Babylonians eventually. And then in verses 17 to 19, as he closes the book, though the fig tree does not bud, uh, and there are no grapes on the vines... Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, i.e., there ain't no money in the bank, okay? Uh, there's no, there's nothing. There's no cattle in the stall. Nothing's growing. There's nothing. It looks bleak. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Wow. He really, really changes his tune, even though he doesn't see the answer fully. He changes his tune. I will rejoice in God, my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. We were, we were driving uh, on the highway. I think it was home from the U.S. a couple of weeks ago, and we saw this, we saw this deer. You know, these deers are so dumb with the cars. Right? You know the expression, like a deer with the headlights on? When you drive at night and those deer, they look at it. But they're very, very fleet of foot. Very fleet. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and enables me to go on the, the heights. Though there's nothing in the bank. Though, I, though the, 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 you know, it's bad times. You know, bad times in Judah. Um, I will continue uh, to trust the Lord in spite of all of it. He really understands uh, in the end the sovereignty of God. Uh, what lessons uh, do we have to learn? Let me fish through my pile of notes here. Uh, at the end of the day, just put them on the screen for me, Justin. 
Yeah, at the end of the day, God, God can take our complaints. Folks, if, if there's anything I'd love to see more of, it's more of God's people actually praying. Um, do you know how, how few, just to, just to put it out there, I don't know why, do you know how few uh, Christian married couples pray together? Those of you who are married, when was the last time you prayed with your spouse? Just ask yourself that question, okay? If you can't remember when it was, you may want to try and see what that could look like, you know? I see you're looking at each other, the spouses in the room. Very few, the stats are, are true, that very, very true Christian couples actually pray together. And how many of us are actually calling out to God on a daily basis? You know, even if you start by complaining, even if you start by being angry, I mean, God would rather hear that than nothing, you know, than, than, than silence, uh, than you not talking to him at all. Even if you just go for your morning walk or you're sitting at your table having your morning coffee, and, God, I'm so angry. I look at this news. I look at this situation in my job. I look at this situation in my family, my spouse. I'm so angry, God, where are you? Ah, he'd rather hear that than nothing, e even if that's where you start. Um, and for those of you who, you know, you're, you're prayer people, you're prayer warriors, can I give you a challenge this week? Can you pray for the event that's going to happen next week? <laughs> can you fast and pray? Those of you who, you know, you know how to pray, can you pray? Can you pray that God will bring people who have, you know, beefs with him? I would rather see a, a ton of unrighteous, ungodly, unsaved people who are upset with God than a whole pile of church people. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? For an event like that, I would love to see a, just a whole mess of people who are upset with God. Uh, you pray. Those of you who know how to pray, you pray and you fast uh, for, for people to come. But God can take your complaints, friends. Um, take it from me because I have complained to God so often. I mean, God is so gracious with me and so faithful to me. He doesn't hurt me when I complain to him. Uh, oftentimes, he answers. So, you know, I, I know how to complain, okay? And if that's all you can do when you pray, well, you start there. God can take your complaints. Number two, um, God may use a Babylon experience in your life. He may raise up the Babylonians. He may use that ungodly boss. He may use that that child that's rebelling, you know, against God. And it's like, it feels like the Babylonians, you know. It's just, wow, this circumstance just is awful. It's awful. It's ungodly. He's ungodly. She's ungodly. It's ungodly. Be careful. God may be using a Babylon experience to help you to grow. And he can use whoever he wants. He can use Christian people. He can use non-Christian people. He can use everything in between. And believe me, he does. He doesn't just use his own people. He uses whoever he wants. He's sovereign. He used the Babylonians there. Later on, he would use the ungodly King Cyrus to bring the Jews back to Jerusalem. He calls Cyrus a pagan king, his Messiah. Cyrus. So don't... don't be oblivious to the fact that that situation that you're in and that ungodly person that you deal with may actually be an agent from God himself to use to refine your character, 
to refine your character, to make you more and more godly, more and more Christ-like. And in the end, we need to change our tune. We need to say, God, though the olive tree, there's nothing on it. The fig tree's not bearing anything. The situation looks empty, empty, empty. There's no growth. There's no nothing. There's no fruit. There's no money. There's no hope. There's no salvation. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Yet, I will take your hand, Lord. I will trust the Lord all the same. Uh, I, I will believe what he says is true, even though I fully don't comprehend it. That's how you know when you're a disciple. <laughs> when you say, God, come what may, I will still grab hold of your hand and trust that you will take me through the storm. These are the lessons that we can learn from this prophet who complained. Would you stand with me, please? I'd ask the band.